Our call to worship is uh, Revelations 14, verses 6 through 13, and you can find it in your Pew Bibles at um, 1146, the page. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the internal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Our third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead and on their hand, they too will drink of the wine of fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patience, endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the who died in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Today's Old Testament reading can be found in Isaiah 40, verses 8 through 10, on your pew Bibles in page 666 and 667. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Today's New Testament reading can be found in your pew Bible on page 1058. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from the law, but, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I became all things to all people, so that by all means I, have, I might save some. I do all these things for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Are you enjoying Miami and California? <laughs> yeah, I think this is uh, Miami Beach in August, uh, and, uh, so enjoy. We don't get there very often want to uh, thank you all for being here despite the heat and just say that uh, God is with us and uh, always 
He delights in the fact that you have accepted his invitation and chosen to be with him this day. And there's something special and something powerful about that. Our texts go different directions. I'm not going to kid you about that this morning. And I'm going to try to tie them together for you, um, but with a couple of different thoughts. So we, we have a couple of things that we're looking at that I consider related today. And they stem from this project that we've been on, uh, this project of answering the question about the meaning of the story of God in relationship to humanity, how we apply it, whether we're willing to build our lives around it, how we tell the story. And in the course of telling the story of Jesus, uh, how do we do that? We've been talking about three things based in Greek rhetoric that were part of the scriptures as they were written, especially Paul's thinking. The first would be ethos, character, who we are, what we've done, the credentials we bring to the word we bear. How do we, how do we lend credibility to the gospel? Sadly, I think many times our lives don't lead, lead credibility, excuse me, don't lend credibility to the gospel. Quite the opposite. Many times our lives detract from the credibility of the gospel. And so this is something that we need to be mindful of as we think about the way in which Paul embodied the story. You see, he was imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, dragged. He, not only had he persecuted, he had been persecuted. He could declare that he was Pharisee among Pharisees with regard to the law. That is to say, he was meticulous. He kept it all, and yet he considered all of that to be, that righteousness to be as filthy rags compared to the glories in Christ Jesus. So he was grounded in that gospel and rooted in that truth. And yet, when it came to character and saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, declare to you this, he was unafraid to do so. He had that relationship. He had that established. He had that credibility. And then we get to pathos, empathy. How do we communicate the story in a touching way, a meaningful way? You know, I, I uh, logged on to Facebook recently, and people have forwarded all kinds of videos. Some of them are so touching. You know, it's like, have a Kleenex box next to your computer these days. You're just going to be wiping your eyes from the tears from these incredible stories. You know, it's just... 97-year-old man loses his wife of 70-some years and wins a songwriting contest. Anybody see that one? Oh, see, I know the Facebookers out there. There are a couple of them. Anyway, so that's empathy. That's a story with pathos. That's a story that connects to our emotions and our heart. That's a story that we can know has some kind of truth to it. You know when somebody's been married for 72 years that they loved their spouse. Even if they had disagreements, even if they occasionally didn't get along, you know the love is there, yes? I hope so. That's character and ethos. That's ethos, rather, ethos and pathos coming together as the story is told through person and through emotion. And then there's the message itself. Is it logical? Is it reasonable? How do we, what barriers can we remove from people for coming to faith? Do we have to make it harder than it is? Our text in Isaiah 40 tells us that if you're going to speak to Zion, climb up on another high mountain. Speak to highness from highness, strength from strength, position from position. 
And in the city, don't be shy. Raise your voice. Project yourself. Declare, says the Lord. In Zion, what's that? In Jerusalem. Let's look at the text really quickly. It was read for us nicely earlier. I just want to reference it. Isaiah 48 to 10. The word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings, what are good tidings? They're good news, right? It's another way of saying the gospel in the New Testament context. The glad tidings of the Old Testament would be good news of a runner or somebody bringing news of a battle, but more specifically, the good news of the Old Testament is the gospel of the new. When you bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. When you bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And I left out 11, but I'd like you to hear it. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Mighty and strong and tender and loving. That's our God. And so as we make this declaration, as we go and say what he is like, those are some guide points, aren't they? That helps us a little bit with understanding how to tell the message. Because what I want us to come to today is that it is our job to tell the gospel, the good news, by any means possible that isn't sin. Now, I borrow that from a guy named Craig uh, Groschel, who works with um, a training company and has some very interesting things to say about churches and our mission and our purpose, and if you get the chance to do that, um, you might want to look him up. But he has reminded me of this. He's reminded me of the truth that we all know, that our job is to tell the story of Jesus by any means possible except for sin. Makes sense, doesn't it? But we want to do it mostly with some thought. I, when I think about any means possible, I think we've got to be very careful about the message. Does it conform to what we just heard in Isaiah? Does the method speak to what we just heard in Isaiah? Oh, and, and there's more. We as Seventh-day Adventists have a very unique message. A lot of people wonder why they don't hear the meat of the gospel, the three angels' message. But I'm going to break it down for you really quick here. I wish Lee were here. He would say, break it down, Pastor. Break it down. Thank you. All right. Turn to Revelation 14, and we're just going to go through this with an eye to understanding, again, the message, the way in which we're called specifically in our context, we believe, as Adventists. Some of you have been around long enough to remember the old Adventist logo. How many of you remember the old Adventist logo? I'll tell you what it was. It was three angels with trumpets extended flying through the air all in a row. And it was all encompassed in a circle. It was really modern. It looked really cool. And there's still some of those around, although they're hard to find. And, and everywhere in Adventist churches, for a time, you would find the three angels. It was for Revelation 14 and the message of the three angels. But let's just listen because we read this and we think, oh yeah, the three angels' message. 
But what is it saying to us as we think about what it means to share the gospel? Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So let's stop right there. We have an angel with a message, and in this case, it's the eternal gospel. And it's for everyone. Now that's pretty inclusive. That's inclusive of all time, and that's inclusive of all people. That's pretty big, isn't it? What is excluded in eternal and in all? Not much. Not much. So the eternal gospel, the one that emanates from God and Christ, is for everybody, all people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, I can imagine that there are commentators, in fact, I know there are commentators, who would give significance to each of these pieces, and that's worth your study. But what I'd like to suggest for our purposes today is that rather than figuring out what might be represented in the heavens or the earth or the sea or the springs of water, that we summarize it in this way. First, we give God glory. We worship Him for two reasons. He's the creator, the redeemer, and the judge. And mostly this focuses on judgment, creation and judgment. Elsewhere in Revelation, God says, I will destroy those who destroy the world. That's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering in the context of this passage because we see here that the first thing that we're to do is recognize the eternality and pervasiveness, all-inclusiveness of the gospel in relationship to all people. And just like in Isaiah, proclaiming with a loud voice, we say, fear God, love God, honor God, obey God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment is here but he's the one who created all things. Second angel follows. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, I think we would want to say two things here. If we tie this into Daniel, we know that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. The great kingdom of Babylon as referenced in the book of Daniel is fallen. But Babylon becomes a reference for something else with its root word, Babel, Babel, the tower that came before it. It refers to confusion and false systems of religion. That would be the interpretation that we have landed on and, and, and espoused for over 100 years. When we say Babylon, the angel declares that Babylon the Great has fallen, we're, we're talking about those systems of religion, those systems of religion that are false, that would pervert the word of God, that would give another gospel. Remember, Paul chides one of his groups, that, one of his churches that he started, when he, when he writes to them, he says, why have you left the gospel I gave you? Why are you preaching another gospel? Why are you perverting the gospel of Christ? And when this angel flies over, he says, those perversions of the gospel of Christ that have been disseminated unchecked, those false systems of religion that have entered, have fallen. 
They don't have power anymore. Their power is broken. And then we get to the third angel who says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lambs, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. We have this scene of destruction and desolation, agony of hell. And so... First verse speaks of the time of God's judgment. The second verse speaks of the failure of not only governments, but of false systems of religion. And the third says, okay, here it is. The third says, don't worship the beast. Now, when I was a child, we spent a lot of time on that. Who was, the mark of the, who, who was the beast? What was the mark of the beast? How do we avoid getting the mark of the beast? What's the time of trouble going to look like? What's going to happen at the end? How do we avoid judgment? I think I probably spent more time on those verses than most other verses in Revelation. How many of you spent a lot of time on those verses as a kid or somewhere along the way in your journey? I'm grateful for that time in those verses. It did give me some shape and, and, and some um, contour to my faith. It gave me some distinctiveness, but I, I also have a concern about that focus. And I know many of you have been through that do too. You see, there's two sides to this thing. Whatever we decide the mark of the beast is, it is the opposite of the seal of God. And I grew up not even hearing about the seal of God. You see, the seal of God says, you belong to Jesus. The seal of God says, that's your choice, and it's now irreversible. The seal of God, guess where it gets put? On your forehead and on your hand the same place that the mark of the beast goes. And for so long, I thought it was going to be like a, um, a tattoo or a chip implanted or a barcode or, you know, I'd run around with a barcode tatted, tatted on my forehead like everybody else and on my hand. Be kind of convenient in a way for shopping, right? Just scan your hand and it's tied to your bank accounts and whatnot. We always, that, that was, this whole thing was economic and it was the mark of the beast. All of this was to be avoided. And yet God's seal is also on our foreheads and on our hands. It may be that there's nothing visible that we're going to be experiencing. It may be about whose side you're on. You see, that's what the great controversy tells us. The great controversy tells us in, in our, our understanding of how good and evil have related to one another from the beginning. Where evil came from, where it's going. This arch, if you will, from creation to recreation. We have the great controversy between the story of, of warfare between Christ and Satan and it playing itself out on planet Earth. I would suggest to you that the key in that story is not found in all of the little details. The key in that story is whose side you've chosen to be on. 
Have you chosen to be on God's side, Christ's side, the side of truth and righteousness? Have you chosen to be on the other side? And there is no neutral ground. We all want to be Switzerland. We desperately want to be Switzerland. No judgment for me. I don't want to make a... No, no, whatever, you know. Don't put me in the middle of this. We want to be Switzerland. We don't want to make a judgment. We don't want to make a call. We don't want to choose sides. We don't want to act like we've chosen sides. We don't want to polarize anybody. We don't want to separate ourselves from anything. We don't want to close ourselves off from any real options. Switzerland. It doesn't work that way. When you're on God's side, you're on God's side. And when you're not, you're not. And what Revelation tells us, Revelation 14 particularly, these angels say is, make a choice. Be the church. Be the people of God, the people of Christ. Share the message of a God who wants to enfold people in his arms. God who wants to protect and redeem and save. A God who loves people so much he sent his son. Revelation 14 is special because it ties us to a commission in Matthew 28. Angelic messengers at the end of time saying, this is what is in order. Remember the God who created, honor the God who redeems, respect the God who judges, and choose the right side. Nothing's new. Joshua Caleb, they had to say to the people of Israel after the death of Moses, before they entered the promised land, look, decide, do you believe this is going to happen or don't you? Do you want to enter Canaan or don't you? Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That was the declaration. And Israel followed. Who are you going to serve? Yourself? Your money? Celebrity? What are you going to serve? Who will be your God? What will be your God? And will there be any before that God? Because what it comes down to is what or who is first in your life. Now I need to ask you, is this inconsistent or different than any message I've been preaching these last weeks and months? No. It's a different approach, a different text, a different way of understanding. We would come right back to the same place. It comes back to you. Is this story worth organizing your life around, and will you organize your life around this story? Choose you this day who you will serve. Seal of God or Mark of the Beast? Are you going to worship him who created the heavens and the earth, who redeemed us and will recreate them after he's judged the world? Or are we going to be on the dark side of judgment? Is the smoke of our torment going to rise forever? I've been spending some time with social media, as some of you know. And maybe we'll spend more time on this another Sabbath. 
because we're out of time. In fact, I think we will. I'm going to come back another week to this 1 Corinthians 9, and I'm going to give you a preview. Paul says succinctly, when I'm with the Jews, I'm a Jew to win them for Christ. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile or as a Gentile so that they too might be saved. I become all things to all people in order that the gospel might be preached. How are you telling your story? How are you becoming the story? You see, a friend of mine, Smuts Van Royen, said this, and I'll leave you with this thought. He said this in 2000 at a meeting we had on the new millennia in Adventism. He was a panelist, and he very thoughtfully said, until our story, meaning the Seventh-day Adventist Church, until, let me, let me make sure I get this right, until his story, referring to Jesus Christ, becomes our story, meaning the Seventh-day Adventist Church, our future is in question. Isn't that something? Until his story becomes our story, our future is in question. How do we, the people called by God, live out the self-sacrificing love of Christ? We'll explore more of that later. Amen. Lord, in the uniqueness to which each of us have been made, and to the salvation which each of us have been called, and to the choice presented to each of us, make us able... And by your grace, may we indeed tell the story of Jesus. Amen.